0: Now, instructions, that's kind of what we're dealing with today. Instructions can uh, be confusing, they can be hard, they can be difficult, especially like on Christmas Eve when you're trying to put something together. Constructions can be difficult. I heard of some constructions this week or instructions that uh, were hard to follow. They're not always easy to follow. Like on a bag of Fritos, it was said, you could be a winner. No purchase necessary, details inside. Uh, on some bread pudding was this warning, will be hot after heating. On an ironing, uh, a new iron, on its packaging, it said, do not iron clothes on body. On some children's cough medicine, it says, do not drive a car or operate machinery after taking this. If you didn't get that, that's children's cough medicine. On a sleep aid, it it said, warning, may cause drowsiness. Is that a warning? On a food processor from Japan, it says, do not use for other use. On a microwave oven, it says, do not use for drying pets. (laughs) Probably shouldn't even have read that in a mixed crowd with kids. Uh, Laundry detergent box said, remove clothing before distributing in washing machine. Okay, and then in Prague, there was a tram. Apparently, it was an electrical tram in Prague. It said, beware. To touch these wires is instant death. Anyone found doing so will be persecuted. (laughs) Not prosecuted, but persecuted. A hotel bedroom in Japan had an instruction that says, Please do not turn on TV except when in use. How do you do that? In a hotel lift in Japan, it says, push this button in case anything happens. (laughs) There was a toilet brush that had the instruction, do not use orally. (laughs) Hair dye had this instruction, do not use as ice cream topping. Okay. Okay. And then this one on the box that a wristwatch came in must have been foreign and they transla- got lost in the translation. Warning, not underwear. Do not attempt to put in pants. A wristwatch. So some instructions are hard to follow. The pattern of construction for the church must be really followed in God's way. We're going to construct what God wants. Uh, Psalm 127 verse 1 says, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain that do build it. And then Matthew 7, 24 says, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. First Corinthians three ten says, Paul says, as a wise master builder, I've laid the foundation, and another, that would be you and I, builds on it and lets each of us take heed. Uh, Ephesians 2 verse 20 says, Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. Colossians uh, Colossians 2 and verse 7 says, Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. So it's supposed to be according to His will. 1 Peter 2 verse 5 says, As living stones uh, are being built up a spiritual house. So that's how we're to construct it, and that is according to His will, and understand that that's part of our duty to construct the church of our Lord. So to construct our faith, though, and that's individually within us, there's a whole another set of patterns we could talk about, and those are things that we're supposed to know, and uh, that's not what I'm really dealing with today. For example, there's you could say there's a, a pattern of numbers all through scriptures. Like one cross, there's two covenants, there's three divine personalities. There are four gospels of Christ. There are five. But I say unto you in a sermon on the mount, there are six principles of the principles of faith mentioned in Hebrews. There are seven ones of faith. There are seven add to your faith. There are eight Beatitudes. There are nine fruits of the Spirit. There are ten commandments. So there are a lot of numbers in scriptures and ways to remember these things. Then those are things we put internally. I'm really talking about corporately as a body today. To construct a church properly, there are at least five patterns of our fellowship, particularly Church of Christ Fellowship. So we're going to look at the big five. There's five fives, actually. So we're going to look at the big five that kind of... Help us construct a church. Wherever you go, you can construct a church of Christ basically with these five patterns. So that's what we're looking at today, simply put. Number one, they're the five rungs of conversion. If you were talking about a ladder, the rungs of this are found particularly in the book of Acts. There are many examples of conversion in the book of Acts, particularly, obviously, the one we're looking at first, which is Acts 2, but then there's Acts 8, there's... And it's got two examples there. In Acts 9, there's an example. Acts 10's got an example. Acts 16 has two examples. Acts 18 has an example. Acts 19 has an example. Acts 22 has an example. So there's quite a few examples that we could follow. We're going to focus on Acts chapter 2. And let me lay those out for you as what we understand happened in that preaching. The first thing that happened is that Peter stands up and he says something to them. Verse 22: Men of Israel hear these words. And then he proceeds to teach them about who Jesus was and what he did. In verse 37, it says, Those that heard him. And so it was essential. For the very first step, somebody has to do some teaching and somebody has to do some listening. So if you're going to follow the Lord, the example is there has to be some hearing. And that had to be audible, but in this case it was. So hearing is, is the first step. The second step that's found in this text is believing. In verses 36 and 37, after he got through declaring him Lord in Christ... Uh, he says, no, assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So he says that and then caps it off with verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. So apparently they did believe this teaching he'd given that Christ had died. He had been buried. He rose again, that he performed miracles. And he was the Messiah, the Christ, the son of the living God. And so they believed that and apparently knew it was true because... They realized that they had been a part of killing Christ, and they were cut to the heart. The third thing they did is they confessed. And and verse 37 says, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? He said, well, what did they say? They didn't have to say anything else. By the fact that they said this, they were confirming that as far as they were concerned, Jesus was Lord and christ that's what they're confessing at this moment when they say that the third the fourth thing they did in this text is that they were told to repent verse 38 then peter said to them repent and obviously that means that being cut to the heart is not all there is to repentance somebody says well i feel sorry for what i've done well they already felt sorry for what they had done repentance involves more than feeling sorry there is a change in your behavior. So repentance is key to being right with God. And it's a part of the conversion process. And then, then there's baptism talked about, and that's verse 38 again, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you'll see the gift of the Holy spirit. And then it says verse 39, this promise of the Holy spirit and salvation is to you and your children, all that are far off. Verse 41, then those who gladly received his word were baptized. So that's how you knew that they actually listened and had responded. So those are the five rungs of what every example in the book of Acts does. They hear, they believe, they confess, they repent, and they're baptized. And that's in every example that we have. So those are the five rungs. So if you're going to teach what they taught, you're going to teach those five things about how to respond if you're being converted. The second five is the five rituals of celebration. Now, Philippians 3, verse 3 says, We are the circumcision; who worship God in spirit. But we worship God more than just in spirit. We worship God also in truth. One of the key things that we as churches of Christ try to do is we try to follow the New Testament so exactly that we try to do what they did the way they did it. Okay? This goes back a long way. It goes all the way back to Irenaeus. It goes back to the Bible, obviously. But it began to be clearly enunciated by the Puritans as what was called the regulatory principle, which basically says this, if you're talking about worship. It doesn't apply to everything, but it does apply to worship. And it means that God, therefore, since he commanded us to worship, he must have given us distinct elements in Scripture, and therefore we should do those things that he gave us, and not do anything that's not listed there. Those other things would be prohibited. And the things that he gave us would be commanded. The, that's the, what's called the regulatory principle. The normative principle is the reverse of that. Which applies to other things but not worship. And that is whatever God does not forbid is allowed. So when we come to worship. And this is a long standing thing. This is not started by us per se. But we sure do stand by it. And that is... Whatever God commands in scripture are the elements of worship and therefore he prohibits all others. And he gives us five of those at the very beginning, right after these people are baptized. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 42 it says, And they continued... These people that were baptized, they, the baptized believers, continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. That's just another word for the apostles' teaching. So the first thing you see is in worship, there should be teaching. So somebody says, I I, I don't see it. Well, from the very beginning, this is the way they began. And then there is a communion service in a worship service in this text. And it says, and in fellowship and the breaking of bread. Now what's significant, the reason we believe that's the Lord's Supper. Not just because it's recorded in Acts 20 and verse 7. Not just because the passage in Matthew 26 that were brought to your attention a while ago. But because in this text, it has an article in it in the Greek that says the breaking of the bread. Which signifies that the bread was special. So this wasn't just a normal meal. Because that's not the normal way you say talking about having a meal. So they had communion or the Lord's Supper. The third thing they did is they prayed. Verse 42 says, and they continued in prayers. And then it says, fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done. So they believed that God could do things in their life. And they saw God doing things in their life. And they prayed accordingly. The fourth thing that's recorded in this text that they did is that they gave. It says in verse 44 Now all who believed were together and had all things in common. That means I share what I've got with you. You share what you've got with me. That's called giving. Verse 45. And they sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. That's taking care of needs of the brethren particularly but sharing and giving. Verse 46. Again even in meals they continued from house to house to do this, breaking bread from house to house, so they continued to give so it wasn't just something they did on Sunday but it was definitely something they did when they gathered together on Pentecost which was Sunday and the first day of the week Acts 2 and verse 47 it says, verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to church daily those who were being saved, so they were praising God we call that singing, there's no mention of anything else there, so that's what we have five rituals, teaching Communion or Lord's Supper. Praying, giving, praising. That's what they did. We're trying to do what they did because we know that's right. Okay? So five rituals of celebration. The third five are the five roles of the church or of a congregation. It says, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Now, I understand that there were 12 apostles, and then there was another one or two that had miraculous ability. And they were the primary because they saw Jesus himself. They walked with him. They talked with him. And so they were specially sent by God. And we don't have those guys. They're all dead now, right? They're they're not with us. However, the idea of being sent out is the term we use for missionaries today. So when we send people out to do missions, we're doing much as Jesus did with those 12. So we still have missionaries today, and they're a part of the body. We actually have some people we send out every year to various countries from this church. So there's apostles that we send, not that Christ directly sends, but that Christ sends through us. And then there's prophets. Now prophets were those who were gifted, specially gifted. They were usually writers, And they were powerful preachers. That sort of thing still happens. The miraculous gift thing, I don't know of anybody that's running around with that one. But I do know of gifted men who do writing in the church who are powerful preachers. So we kind of have those guys with us today. And then there are evangelists, which are generally referred to as local preachers who are predominantly soul winners, trying to win more souls. We still have those guys with us today. There are pastors. Now, that's not referring to me. I know some of y'all call me that all the time. But that's not referring to me. That's referring to our six elders. It's another word for elder, like shepherd, pastor, pastor. Presbyter. Uh, it's where the Presbyterians got their name. Elders are to lead and feed a local church. That's what pastors do. That's what our six pastors do. Then there are teachers in every congregation. That's members. That's every one of you who are involved in teaching, whether it's teaching the lost or teaching children in our Sunday school program or teaching any other way that might be uh, thought of. So there are five roles in every church. There should be apostles, or the word we would use today would be. Missionaries, there should be prophets or powerful preachers in the church, there should be evangelists, there should be pastors, there should be teachers. Those are the five patterns of the roles that still exist in a form today. The next five are the five reasons of convocation. Now, convocation just means a gathering together, but it's used in, I want to bring it in, I'll show you why I'm using it, Leviticus 23.3, because I've heard people say that there's no authority to have even a synagogue, that that was invented by the Jews. That's not true, and you need to know your Bible better. Leviticus 23, verse 3 says, Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest. A holy convocation, that means a holy gathering assembly. You shall do no work on it. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. Well, a Sabbath day's journey is 2,000 steps. If people are scattered all over Israel and they're going to have a holy convocation, they're going to have to have it in all your dwellings, which means a synagogue synagogues scattered all across Israel. That's what it applies, and that's how it, That's where they got that. That's not made up. They didn't make it up. It's in the Bible. And so what, what are we to find, though? So in our synagogue, in our assembly, that's all the word synagogue means, in our assembly, in our synagogues, what are we to expect to do? Why did God call us into such an assembly? What is it? Well, it's to worship. It's to teach people the five things. It's more than that. Let me give you those quickly. Number one, it's evangelizing. Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that's even the reason we teach what to do to be saved pretty much every Sunday. That's pretty much standard. So evangelizing is a part of our worship service. We even have an invitation to him. We don't have it because you have to have it. But you do have to try to reach out to the lost. So the Bible doesn't say you have to have an invitation to him. And have that kind of thing. Three songs of prayer, another song. It doesn't do that. All right. But there is also to be teaching. Uh, I already mentioned this a moment ago that they did that. But that is one of the purposes we gather. And this is what it says, verse 20 teaching them, those that are baptized, to observe all things that I've commanded you. So that's where we come from. So everybody has to be retaught and retaught and retaught over and over again because that's a lot of material to cover. It's a, it's a good bit of material. And then there obviously supposed to be worship take place when we gather together. In John 4 verse 23 says that the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father seeketh such to worship him. So he, God wants us to worship. That's why we sing songs. That's why we pray. That's why we do it all. Because those are acts of worship and celebration of God, but then there is another thing that a church is supposed to be involved in doing, and that is helping other people. In Matthew twenty-five verses thirty-one through forty-six, I'll just start in verse thirty-four. It says the King will say, "Come, you blessed of my Father, and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food; I was thirsty and you gave me drink. Now these are the people that are saved. I was a stranger and you took me in; I was naked." And you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was imprisoned and you came to me. So since that's the kind of thing all of us who've been called to the Lord are supposed to be doing, as a body of believers, we do that. A good text on that would be Galatians chapter six, but I'm not going any further with that right now. But then there is an equipping. It's important that we be involved in equipping each other. This is similar to the teaching thing, but it's more than that. Ephesians 4 and verse 12 says, For the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. There's teaching, but there's more than that. We need to train one another in actually how to win souls. We need to train one another and how to conduct a church and put it together. This, what I'm doing right now, is equipping you, even though you may not realize it, in how to construct a church wherever you would go. These are the kind of things that you should do. And so there are five reasons that we really have a meeting beyond what you, we, the first five. And that is to evangelize, to teach, to worship, to help, and to equip. So these are part of the five patterns. And this is the five reasons of convocation. Then there are, and this is the final five. And that is the five rules of comprehension. So if you're going to teach the Bible... You need to understand something about how people actually comprehend the Scriptures and how we need to teach it distinctly. And Nehemiah 8, 8 says they read distinctly and they, of the Scriptures and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. Because a lot of people don't get it. What's involved in that? The first thing you've got to recognize is the language barrier. Folks, I, I, I don't speak Hebrew or Greek. I don't even speak English much. So you need to understand when you're listening to me, you have to put that southern thing in your ear and go, he talks funny. That's right. But the same thing's true in scripture. So you gotta know when you're when you're dealing with a Bible that was written in a different language and now it's in English and so you need to understand definitions of terms and usage and The context of everything. And so we look at that in Galatians 3 and verse 16, good example. He does not say, and the seeds as of many, but as of one, and your seed who is Christ. So you need to pay attention to words very specifically, whether they're plural, singular, what does that word mean? Because that's the way it's been read all throughout the history of anybody who studied the Bible. You need to look at the language. The second thing you need to look at is laws that are in the scriptures. Uh, like in Matthew five nineteen. 19. See, it, you need to treat the Bible almost like you were a lawyer. And, you, you know, like if you've read any court cases or anything like that, you think, man, that's a bit stilted. But you almost have to analyze things like that to understand laws. You can't get it if you just wash over it. So you read it carefully, you look for precedent, you look for example, you look for commands or legal terms. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So we aren't to, you say, well, I think you're being too legalistic there. Well, you can do that. You can be too legalistic, but you can also be an antinomian. You can be a person who doesn't believe that there are any rules in it and I can do whatever I want. That's also not the appropriate path. So there are laws, there are rules. We do need to look at it like that. And then the next thing is, there, you need to understand where a passage leads to. There are conclusions, consistent conclusions when you're reading the scriptures. Are you looking for the consistent conclusion, what we call the inference, or even what we call the necessary inference? And Jesus uses this quite a few times. But Matthew twenty-two thirty-two 32 says, and I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. That's what God said at the burning bush. I am the God of Abraham. The God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Now, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were all dead when he said that. And then Jesus says this, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And he's teaching about the resurrection. So he's saying he made a conclusion based upon the word am. He made a conclusion that they were still alive to God and that they were going to be raised. That's his conclusion, and it's it's where does the scripture lead to? The next thing is love. If you're going to understand the scriptures, you need to have a love. You need to have a love for wisdom and honesty, but you need to have a love for the truth. In 2 Thessalonians two and verse ten says, "They did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved." Now, this is not a love of logic. If you love logic, you can get you know you just get arrogant. But if you love truth. Then you look further. You make sure what you're figuring out is true. Amen? So that's what love for truth does. And finally, liberty. And this is critical. This is critical because some people leave this one off. And as a result, they come away with a very stern view in all things religious. And that is freedom from burdening people. We aren't to burden people. You remember what I said about the normative principle? That actually works in most of Christianity. That's fine because it doesn't burden people. You don't make rules where God hasn't made them, right? And Acts 15 verse 28 says, It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. So not beyond that. And where does that come from? Well, it comes from 1627 when a guy named Rupertus. And I can't say his last name said in essentials, unity in doubtful things are non essentials, liberty, but in all things, charity or all things love. We need to be more careful that we don't turn something that is a necessity into a necessity. That's when we go the wrong direction. So these are rules that should kind of, and they're not rules like you think about in the law book, but they are critical in understanding. And that is the language matters, laws matter, where the passage leads to matter, loving the truth matters, and liberty matters. And if you understand all five of those, you can pretty much understand and comprehend the scriptures. Without that, you pretty much won't. So those are the five fives. They're the five big fives. The five rungs of conversion. The five rituals of celebration or worship. The five roles in every congregation that we should look for people doing those things. The five reasons of convocation. Why we actually gather together. The works we do together. And then there's the five rules of comprehension. So those are kind of how you can build and construct the temple of the Lord today. You know, there's a frightening phrase at Christmas that all of us kind of get scared of when we get a box uh, for something for our kids and all of a sudden we see these words, some assembly required. You know, that's not the only person that gets scared. Uh, That happens to poor attenders at church. Some assembly required, they get scared. Uh, To assemble the church properly, And scripturally, it can be hard, but you can do it. And if you do it, you will be blessed by blessing others. Because when you do it, if you already know what you believe and you're gathered, it's not just critical that you do that. It's critical for the ones who will come after you. You see, this isn't just about you and what you want. The service isn't just about you and what you desire. We don't have a church here for just you. This is for us all, which means we have to make allowances for each other. We don't all think alike. We don't all do things alike. And, and to do it means that we kind of have to agree to follow these kind of rules or we will never stay together. That's just the way it is. Constructing things is not the easiest thing in the world. And to keep it constructed is not the easiest thing in the world either. You know, it can fall apart on you. Uh, Francis Weisner uh, from the good city of Carabella, Florida. Y'all know where that's at, right? I knew you didn't. So it's up in the panhandle on the coast, Carabella. And she says, now, that's where I was raised. He says, she said... I don't think we were poor, but we weren't exceptionally wealthy. At the age of 12, somewhere around September, October, she said her dad came home with a couple of bikes that were rusty and ugly. They were terrible looking. And he said his boss had asked him to bring those bikes home to fix them up for his kids at Christmas. So they thought, well, that's a good idea. So she and her sister's brothers gathered in, and mom and dad, and they all got out and started working on them. They uh, pitched in, they sanded, they painted, uh, they put new handle grips on, they put new seats on. They really fixed them up. After a couple of weeks, they had them looking gorgeous. In fact, then so they looked stunning, and, and the dad put them in the back of his pickup truck, and he drove them away, and they all thought, you know, that was good to be a part of something to help make Christmas really good for some other kids. Don't you think? That was a lovely thing to do. Two months went by, forgot all about it. Christmas rolled in, and she said, we found those two bikes under our Christmas tree. Said we cried. We had, we knew that, God, uh, that uh, Dad had kind of tricked us, but that was... One of the most wonderful Christmases in my life, she said. It's such rewarding to actually have done something for someone else and it blessed you. You see, the work of properly assembling a church is for others. But it ends up blessing you. Some assembly is required to properly assemble a church to bless others. You say, well, I don't agree with the way you assemble it. Okay, that may be true. Here's the thing. You still got to assemble one according to some kind of rules. That's what you got to do. And if you don't stand by your rules, you'll destroy it. Because nobody will want to go there. Now, that's the truth. You got to have something. You got to kind of know what you're going to face every week You come in here. Amen? I don't want to come in here and all of a sudden be totally different. Do you? I would, it wouldn't last. Nothing will last. Some assembly is required, and some assembly is required for any and all of us to truly be a Christian. You must, as they did in Acts chapter 2, hear the truth about Jesus. You must believe it. And to the point of probably being cut to the heart. You must then confess that you believe He is Lord and Christ. And you must repent. That means more than I feel sorry about what I did. That means I intend to try to change and make Him my Lord and Christ. And then you need to be baptized. Why? For the remission of your sins to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's it. What happens then? You're added to the body of believers who do these other things. And then it's on you. Guess what? It's then on you, wherever you go, to try to make sure that the kingdom of the Lord is is constructed appropriately if you need to come won't you come while we stand and while we sing